Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 16 and the first 15 verses. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that, when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Three thousand litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifteen hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? Thirty tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it twenty-four. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Thanks very much, Steve, and it's great to have you with us if you joined us at the start of the service. So while I was preparing this talk, I opened up a commentary on this passage, and here is how it began. This is notoriously one of the most difficult parables to interpret. So if you weren't sure what it was all about when Steve was reading it out just now, then don't worry, you are not the first person to have had that thought. So in light of that, let's pray for God's help as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for this part of Jesus' teaching and the opportunity to look at it now. Please help me as I speak and be with us all as we listen to what you would teach us through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as Claire said, we're continuing our series looking at some of the parables in Luke's Gospel. 
And after perhaps one of the most well-known ones last week, the parable of the lost son, we get perhaps one of the least well-known, the parable of the shrewd manager. It's helpful at the start to note that the passage is split into two. We have the body of the parable in verses 1 to 9, followed by some teaching on money in verses 10 to 15. Jesus often used stories from everyday life, often with a bit of a twist, to bring his teaching to life. However, it's important to remember that they are metaphors rather than a step-by-step guide for how to live. We need to be careful that we don't assume that we can act exactly in the same way as the main characters. That said, let's look at this story again. We have a business scene with a rich man who has a manager working for him. Now, this manager would have had a lot of power. He would have been in charge of managing his master's property and business with delegated authority to act on his master's behalf. However, this manager has been accused of wasting his master's possessions. Maybe he's been doing some dodgy dealings or lining his own pockets. And so when the master finds out, he calls him in and confronts him about this before sacking him in verse 2. We can assume that the the manager is guilty as he doesn't even try to defend himself. He realises that the game is up and so in verse 3 he contemplates his future. If he's been sacked for dishonesty, he's not exactly going to get a glowing reference to get another managerial job. He surveys the options and decides that he is not cut out for manual labour and he is too proud to beg. But then he has his aha moment in verse 4 and he leaves no time for executing his plan. He uses the window of opportunity he has been given to repair his accounts to call in his master's debtors one by one in verses 5 to 7. We only get two mentioned here but the implication is that he goes through all of them. These were likely tenant farmers who farmed on the estate and who paid rent in kind from their produce, oil and wheat in this case. The manager gets them to rewrite their contracts with smaller debt. The debtors will therefore be extremely grateful for his generosity, so he's now gained himself some friends who will be able to help him out in the future. But all this puts the master in a bit of a tricky situation when he finds out. The dishonest manager has managed to swindle him again. If he complains, he will look bad in front of his debtors, and without the original accounts, he would struggle to prove anything anyway. And then we come to verses 8 and 9, which are often the verses which trip people up. We get the master's reaction and Jesus' explanation of the parable. Let's look at them now. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The master commends the dishonest manager. But importantly, he is commending him for acting shrewdly, not because he acted dishonestly. 
The dictionary definition of being shrewd is having a clear understanding and good judgment of a situation resulting in an advantage. The manager assessed the situation well, acted accordingly, and ended up in an advantageous position. It is acting shrewdly that Jesus is commending to his disciples, the people of the light he is addressing the parable to. He is not encouraging them to get involved in dodgy business dealings, but instead to act shrewdly. And so this lunchtime, we're going to focus on two lessons from this parable and the following teaching of money that I think Jesus wants us to learn about acting shrewdly. And the first is to act now in light of the future, looking particularly at verses 1 to 9. The manager recognises the crisis that is coming. He is very aware that he is losing his job and his livelihood, and that he needs to do something to safeguard his future. So he acts accordingly and uses the resources at his disposal to assure that his future is secure. Rather than hanging around moping, he uses the window of opportunity he has been given to make himself some friends who will be able to help him out when times get tough. He invests in his future now. I wonder, do you ever think about the future? Or are you so focused on the here and now? Or to put it another way, what are you investing in? Is it all about getting security through money? Making sure our money is stored up somewhere with a decent interest rate? But actually, no matter how secure an investment No matter how financially savvy we are, our wealth will let us down. Financial crashes happen. We could lose our job or our seat at the next election. And even if we manage to navigate the financial ups and downs of our lives and end up retiring happily with a house and a good pension pot, that will still not give us ultimate security. The reality is that ultimately we will die and we cannot take our money and material possessions with us. Whether we are rich or poor, we all die in the end. I don't know whether you've ever been to see the Sutton Hoo exhibit in the British Museum, or even better, the actual Sutton Hoo site in Suffolk. In 1939, the amateur archaeologist Basil Brown discovered the richest intact early medieval grave in Europe. It was a spectacular 27-metre-long ship with a burial chamber full of treasures, no doubt belonging to an Anglo-Saxon king. He clearly died extremely wealthy. But the stark reality is that those riches are of absolutely no use to him now. Instead, they can now be found in glass cases in a museum. Returning to our parable, the manager recognises that his income is about to run out, and so he uses the resources he has now to pay forwards into the future. Jesus is making the point that if the people of this world, including the dishonest manager, are able to be shrewd and to think of the future, how much more should we, particularly when we have an eternal perspective? 
As Jesus says in verse 9, we should use our worldly wealth, our money, possessions, resources, status and so on, to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. We'll come back to exactly what the end of verse 9 means a bit later on. But for now, it is important that we act in light of the future, which means we will need to learn to invest well. And so we move on to our second lesson from the parable, which you get in Jesus' accompanying teaching in verses 10 to 13, that we should invest wisely to serve our true master. Jesus expands this into some teaching for his disciples on money. When we get a master in a parable, the master often represents God. And the word for manager could also be translated as steward. He is someone who is managing or stewarding someone else's possessions. And so we should see ourselves in the manager. We are all stewards of the resources that God has given us. And like the manager, we should invest wisely in our future. But rather than serving ourselves, as the manager in the parable does, we should be serving God. We can only have one master. Jesus makes that clear in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We might like to think that we are autonomous people, but we all actually serve someone or something. Now today there are plenty of people who have more than one job and so more than one boss. But in Jesus' day, a servant was totally committed to one household. They would live there. They would almost be like one of the family. In that context, it is obvious that you can't serve two masters. Think of period dramas like Downton Abbey. There's a whole world of servants below stairs who are dedicated to the Crawley family. You wouldn't find Carson going and being a butler for someone else while still serving Lord Grantham. He would obviously not have been able to do his job properly if he had done so. So Jesus is right when he says that we have to choose God or money. The word used for money here is mammon in the Greek. It doesn't just refer to cold hard cash, but anything we have contributing to wealth. So yes, the amount that's in our bank account, but also our property, our pension pot and other investments, our possessions. Jesus is saying that we cannot serve both God and money. We cannot chase after making ourselves as wealthy or as secure as possible while still pretending that we are serving God. It will just eat us alive. After all, our wealth is not our own. We like to think that it is, that we have worked for it and that it is ours. And yes, we might have worked hard and made some good decisions along the way, but can we really take all of the credit? The reality is that our wealth is largely down to forces outside of our control. The time and place we were born, the opportunities available to us, our innate talents, even our health. 
If you had been born a subsistence farmer in sub-Saharan Africa, you might still work incredibly hard, but not have the same wealth to show for it. Instead, the Bible is clear that everything we have belongs to God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And returning to our passage, verses 10 to 12 recognise that what we have has been given to us on trust and it is our job to be faithful. So Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? We know that the manager has been dishonest. Our challenge is to instead to be trustworthy. This will mean investing in the future, using our wealth and possessions in such a way that it serves and honours God. Our worldly wealth will run out. Serving it is ultimately a waste of time. If we use it to serve God, however, we will be investing in something that will last beyond our death into eternity. That is what Jesus is getting at in verse 9. Using our wealth to serve God will mean that we gain friends who will welcome us into eternal dwellings. This obviously doesn't mean that we buy ourselves friends or buy our way into heaven. Rather, we should be investing in a future like that seen in the three parables which come immediately before this one, where the lost are found. Using our wealth to enable people to come to know Jesus and building his kingdom through sharing his love with others will mean we are investing in something that will last. When we die, we will not be able to take our money with us. But when the new creation comes, if we have invested well, we will get to see the fruits of our work. We will be welcomed there by people who have come into the kingdom of God because of our investment in sharing the gospel with them. We will be welcomed into God's arms as a good and faithful servant. Our choice now is whether or not we use our money and possessions in service of God and get to invest them in this future. We will never do this perfectly, but are still saved through faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who fully served God rather than his own interests. But having a relationship with Jesus will inevitably influence how we spend our money and who we serve. As we draw to a close, how will we respond? We get one response from the Pharisees, who have been listening in, in verses 14 to 15. They loved money, and they sneer at Jesus. They think that they can serve both God and money. And there will be many people in our culture who will sneer at the idea that you would not serve yourself in the pursuit of money. But Jesus' challenge to the Pharisees in verse 15 is that God knows their hearts, and he knows ours too. Will we serve God or money? Are we investing in our eternal future, or are we so caught up in the here and now that we miss the opportunity to build something that will last?
we need to remember that our true master is a loving and faithful father in whom true riches are found. If we are a Christian, is it time that we re-evaluated what it is that we are actually living for? Are we being faithful with what God has entrusted to us? And if you're here and aren't a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, are you thinking about the future? Do you really think that money and wealth will give you the meaning and fulfilment we all truly desire? Let me encourage you to look to Jesus, the one in whom true riches are found. Let's pray to finish. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a good and faithful God who gives us true riches and a sure and certain hope for the future through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the money and possessions you have entrusted to us. Please help us to use them wisely and faithfully in service of you and your kingdom, so that we will build something with them that will last. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.